Welcome to Oncology Journal Club, how COVID treatment advances are helping CLL patients. Journal Club is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech Incorporated. In this podcast, Dr. Jennifer Woyak and Dr. Carrie Rogers have some good news for preventing and treating COVID in patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. With these treatment advances, clinicians can have a more balanced focus on CLL standards of care with BTK inhibitors such as abrutinib and anti-CD20 treatments such as rituximab and not as much worry about COVID. Drs. Woyak and Rogers will discuss two papers. The first, from MJ Levin and colleagues, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, Intramuscular AZD7442, Tixagivumab Silgavimab, for prevention of COVID-19. The second paper is from Thomas Olillo and colleagues, published in the journal Cancer, Seroconversion and Outcomes After Initial and Booster COVID-19 Vaccination in Adults with Hematologic Malignancies. They will also address how to handle a possible drug-drug interaction between tixagivimab, silgavimab, and abrutinib. Spoiler alert, it's nothing to worry about and can be easily addressed. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CLLCOVID2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Wyack is a professor of hematology in the Department of Internal Medicine at The Ohio State University, Columbus. Dr. Rogers is an assistant professor in the Department of Hematology at The Ohio State University, Columbus. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Wyack will begin our discussion. Carrie, thank you for joining me again for another discussion about CLL treatment during the COVID-19 pandemic. These past two years, we've seen a lot of changes in treatment for our patients. And in our last podcast, we discussed how the pandemic was affecting them and how it affected our choices of therapy. For this podcast, we actually have some good news in two papers that show the efficacy of a pre-infection prophylactic and another one that's showing that patients with blood cancer are gaining benefit from COVID-19 vaccine boosters. So let's dive right into the data. Our first paper is from MJ Levin and colleagues and was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this um, had some good news about prevention of COVID-19. In this study, which was actually the second paper that was published, um, a placebo-controlled trial of a prophylactic therapeutic called tixagevimab silgavimab. And I'm going to refer to this when we're discussing it by its brand named Evusheld um, because it's much easier to pronounce. And I think that our listeners also are more used to hearing that term. So this is the first monoclonal antibody combination, and it's actually is a, a two separate monoclonal antibodies that are administered by injection. And this medication was emergency use authorized back in December for the treatment of patients who were likely to not have a great response to vaccination, either due to immunocompromising condition, um, due to some reason why they couldn't get vaccinated, or due to medications that were going to potentially prevent seroconversion. 
So in this study, there was over 5,000 people randomized to either Evusheld or to placebo. They either had to have some sort of immunocompromising characteristic or have a high exposure risk to COVID. And that actually made up the majority of the patients, the ones with high exposure risk. The patients actually could not have been vaccinated prior to going on to the study, but during the course of the study actually were allowed to get vaccinated. Um, what they found is actually a relative risk reduction of almost 83% against symptomatic COVID for the patients who received Evusheld. And actually, the proportion of patients who got symptomatic COVID was very low in both arms. It was 0.2% in the Evusheld arm, 1% in the placebo arm. I think one of the most striking things to me was that there was five cases of severe COVID and two deaths, and all of those were in the placebo arm. Oh, I was going to dive in and add, I think that's like a, a really good point um, because you got to think about what the goal is of some of these things. And I really think one of the major goals, I mean, it's nice to think we could do something to avoid any infection whatsoever. Um, but I, I also agree. I think the major goal is to keep people from getting severely ill or dying of COVID-19. Um, so I also thought that was uh, probably the most interesting or important uh, piece for this whole paper, even more so than that risk reduction of any symptomatic COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's probably a little bit difficult to tease apart you know, how much of this is showed? how much of this could potentially have been the vaccinations that they received afterward, because there were more people in the Evusheld arm actually who got vaccinations afterward. Um, but I think that this certainly does support the use of Evusheld in our patient population. And I think actually that one of the things that I found most interesting is that the adverse event rate was actually just about the same for Evusheld versus placebo. And, you know, when the previous study that had come out, there was a statistically significant increase in cardiac events in the Evusheld arm. And I know we were all very worried and confused about this. You know, why would this cause cardiac events? Was this just a statistical issue? And to me, I think that these data suggest that this is a safe strategy for our patients because there really was not a, a hint towards cardiac events. Right. I think the, um, I also like, you know, when that was statistically significant, it was still like much less than 1%, which made me feel a little better about it, especially when you consider the potential benefit here, you know, it's always a risk benefit ratio and that, that risk is so low. I don't think it outweighs what, what is likely to be a good benefit to our patients. Um, but I think the number one complaint on the patient side, I, I get about this from some of my patients that have gotten Evichelled, um, is actually that the injections uh, go into the, they're intramuscular, they go into the like luteal muscle in the buttocks. And I think that's the biggest complaint, even though oddly um, after it was over, no one said they were sore at all. That was, I think the biggest um, barrier to this. And, you know, with that lower rate of, uh, that we had been talking about at some of these adverse events, um, the patients really um, hadn't been too concerned about it. And, and I think when you get to the point where the injection site's the biggest concern, that just speaks to how safe this is. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I know I agree. These are kind of just our anecdotal experience, but I've had the same thing. I think one person told me they had a headache for a few hours afterward, but the majority of people have said they've actually had no side effects from it. Well, and I've been asking too, just because it's an emergency youth authorized drug, I think it's really important as we get experience and um, same, I had almost um, no concerns and, and the few things people did mention, the patient actually thought it was probably related to something else. Mm -hmm. 
So Carrie, I know in my practice, I'm pretty much recommending this for everybody. So initially we were concerned that there wasn't going to be enough supply for everybody who wanted to receive this, but there does not seem to be as much uptake as one might expect. And we've had no problem getting this for our patients. So I've just been telling my patients, I think this is a nice extra layer of protection against getting symptomatic COVID um, and have been recommending it for everybody. Are you doing anything different? Um, yes, for my, or not different than you, but uh, kind of same for my CLL patients. Um, I've really been recommending this for um, everybody. I think, you know, even though the study did not include a high fraction of, of people that were eligible because of immune compromise and, and certainly wasn't a study specifically in CLL, um, rationally, this really kind of improves the one thing that CLL patients don't do well, which is make antibodies. So it's sort of like um, just on a scientific level designed really to help this patient population the most. And so I usually, and, you know, patients, uh, of course, get confused, like, oh, am I doing this instead of vaccines? Do I get, and we'll talk about, you know, like additional booster shots or, or you know, um, receiving, you know, subsequent doses of COVID-19 vaccines. So they said like, oh, should I be doing Evisheld and not a booster shot? And so I've tried to explain, you know, these do different things. The booster shot gets you, you know, that your, your body recognizes the COVID spike protein and your immunity, but this replaces something your body doesn't do well, which is make antibodies. Um, so I, I do recommend this both in CLL patients on treatment and those that are untreated. Um, you know, and I've had a couple of people that had already had mild COVID-19 or were like uh, younger fit and, you know, weren't interested to get extra injections to protect themselves. And I think, you know, in some patients, the likely benefit is, is going to be less, particularly people that already had COVID and, or potentially have detectable antibodies after vaccines if you test them. Um, but, but in people who have even more risk factors than just the CLL do not have an antibody response after vaccination, um, those are really where I feel like it has the most impact, even though, again, I recommend it for everyone. Mm -hmm. And one thing I keep cautioning patients though, is though we expect this is going to work for six months. So the antibodies will persist for six months and the plan will be to give it again. We've gone through a lot of therapeutic monoclonal antibodies for COVID to this point, And chances are this is not going to work forever. Hopefully they'll be able to reformulate it such that it can work against future variants. Yeah, I was actually really encouraged um, by some uh, data I saw from the manufacturer that it does actually seem to have retained its activity against our current variants. But I've told patients the same when they're talking about redosing or do I do this every six months forever, you know, is that we have to make sure that this is still something that's protecting you from from COVID-19 and, and is working. Cause like you said, we went through a bunch of different therapeutic monoclonals. Um, the other thing I thought you were going to say is to caution patients that just because you got this doesn't mean you should uh, go uh, out clubbing and in crowded indoor spaces. And, you know, I think uh, I, and this isn't really something that was at all captured in data, but is experience. And you can tell me what yours is, but I think for a lot of patients, there is a psychologic benefit to getting this when they see their peers, their family, their like, you know, even age group friends get vaccines and then go out and do some more activities together. And then they know that, you know, they're not going to make a good antibody response. You know, a lot of the press has been about antibody response and they say, okay, but I got my vaccines and I still don't get to go out and do things. And so um, I feel like a lot of my patients have felt more confident 
um, seeing some of their friends and family. Um, I haven't had anyone that did this and decided to just go indoors with a lot of people, uh, but I've had some of them that felt confident going to like a card party at their friend's house or their grandkids like outdoor events that are really things that I think, you know, people really have to be doing just for their psychosocial well-being at this point. Um, so even though that's not something that's captured, I do think that's something I've noticed like in patients who've gotten it has been really beneficial. I completely agree. I think to my experience in my patient population has been the biggest game changer that we've had for exactly that reason, because people, even after getting vaccinated, they didn't know whether they had a good response to it. They're seeing everybody else going out and doing different things unmasked. And they actually felt less comfortable going into grocery stores and other areas because they were the only ones wearing a mask. And I think this has really given people some confidence that they can start resuming some normal activities, which I do think it's, I agree is so important. So let's move on to our next paper. Um, so as mentioned in our last podcast, we didn't have a lot of good news in terms of CLL patients mounting a robust response to COVID-19 vaccines. Um, there is a recent paper that just came out in the journal Cancer from Thomas Olila and colleagues, um, was an, a retrospective analysis about booster vaccinations. Um, Carrie, can you tell us a little bit about this paper? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I was really um, excited to see this paper because again, it's looking at a, a patient population that I care about and also studying something that I know I've been recommending, but like you keep wanting to see data to support or, you know, to help you modify what you recommend to patients. Um, I do want to point out before I start talking about this paper that in this context, booster, I believe is third vaccine. So as many of you know, um, for immunocompetent adults, there's two shots of either a Pfizer or Moderna like mRNA vaccine in the initial series, and then three or more is a booster. For immune compromised patients, they actually have started saying that three shots is the initial series and that fourth and higher is booster. And it is sort of uh, something that came out with the language because it matters because the Moderna dosage for what is technically a booster is lower. Um, but for the purposes of this discussion, a booster shot would be one like a third shot you get after the first two, just so we know what we're talking about. And so they were looking at a, a relatively large number, so 378 uh, patients uh, with uh, hematologic malignancies, which is blood cancers, of course, and looking at like uh, how many had a serologic response, which is the antibody response to initial vaccination. Um, and they do break it down by subtype, and they had... Um, uh, 48 patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which is, of course, our interest here. Um, and the antibody response was actually about what we've seen in other studies where you look at kind of like um, all CLL patients as a group, um, where you had 47.9, so basically 48% not having an antibody response to the vaccine. So that's a little um, less than half of the patients. Um, and then they go on to look at how many had an antibody response um, after a third vaccine dose, which they're calling booster here. Um, so now you've actually got 50%. Um, um, so six of the 12 that went on to receive a third vaccine dose having a serologic response. So I actually think that's huge because it's suggesting that one extra vaccine dose um, picks up another half of the patients are going to have this antibody response, which I know, as I think we might have discussed last time a little bit, it's 
you know, unclear, you know, exactly what causes the protection from vaccine. We know that we, or we think that antibodies help protect you from any symptomatic infection. It's certainly a marker. Your immune system recognizes the vaccine. Um, but I do think that even in people who don't have a, a antibody response to vaccine uh, with CLL, there might be some protection from the vaccine anyway, but we, we don't think it's as good. Um, and we've seen this across some other studies too, where after a third dose, you do see um, people respond with an antibody response that hadn't before. And this is uh, sort of goes back to supporting what I was saying at the beginning, which is for immune compromised patients and specifically those with CLL, we like to consider three vaccine doses to be like your initial vaccination series. And I like to tell, I mean, most of the patients are educated on CLL and knew that their um, rate of getting antibodies after vaccine was less. If not, we certainly educate people about this. But I like to tell them that three vaccines for CLL patients is sort of like the same as getting two vaccines for their you know, healthy spouse who's immunocompetent or their friends that are immunocompetent. Uh, yeah, or for me, assuming I'm immunocompetent, which I think is true. <laughs> so, you know, it's kind of like, this is for you that you get three. And I think it's also encouraging that these extra doses we're giving people do help, especially as the recommendations suggest to give like four or more vaccines. And I don't know what you Yeah, I definitely agree. I think, you know, this is a relatively small study in terms, especially of the number of CLL patients, um, but does reaffirm some data we've seen from other papers that giving the booster dose does increase the proportion of patients that become seropositive. I found this really helpful in my practice too, because I've seen a number of patients who say, well, I didn't get an antibody to the first two. Why would I keep getting vaccines? And I think that these data just help us to, to show people that you actually can get a benefit to a booster, even if you didn't get a benefit from the first um, vaccines. So what about giving boosters and Evusheld? We talked about that a little bit. You know, I've been just recommending for our patients to continue getting their boosters on the regular schedule. Um, when Evusheld first came out, we were trying to space it, I think, 90 days from vaccinations. Now the recommendation is only two weeks. Um, are you doing anything different than that, Carrie? No. And, you know, I think they're, no, I, I'm doing, um, I'm continuing to give people boosters. I think, um, you know, part of it is you think, oh, if you've got Evashel, it's going to block the spike protein, then they're not going to have a response. But, you know, if you've been vaccinated and you have antibodies, like sort of the same thing might happen. And I think the most interesting part is the patients knew about that and then keep thinking that something bad's going to happen to them if they get Evashel and then a vaccine or like, oh, I don't want that. I won't be eligible for vaccines or, mm-hmm. you know, or people get confused like, oh, should I get a booster or have a shelled? And I was like, okay, listen, you want to do everything you can to protect yourself during this time, especially when we're talking about the risk involved with these things is extremely low. And so I, I do say that it really takes two weeks to get your like maximum vaccine benefit. So if you get a booster, I'd wait two, two weeks to get the Evisheld. And then once you've gotten it, I continue recommending, you know, booster additional vaccine doses um, as per the, the guidelines for immunocompromised individuals. Um, so I, I, I do continue to recommend they do both those. And it takes two weeks to schedule the Evisheld injections anyway, half the time. So it works out if you give them a booster in clinic, by the time they're scheduled, they're there. Yep. And I think, you know, with these strategies, our patients have been doing a lot better. Yeah, I did want to mention one thing about uh, additional doses in Evisheld, and then I, I had a comment about um, how you know people are doing better, and that's in that study I was discussing. Um, they did actually have, and this isn't just CLL; this is like for the whole study. 
um, but patients who um, didn't see or convert after a booster and uh, 25 of those got Evisheld and none of them were subsequently diagnosed with uh, COVID. So there was a statistically significant fewer number after Evisheld that didn't, didn't get COVID. And they actually had um, three infections and one COVID-related death in those who did not get Evisheld. And that's in their um, patients who had gotten three vaccine doses and didn't have antibodies. So I do think that suggests a benefit in people with blood cancers who don't have an antibody response, still making it a little unclear in people who do, you know, how much the benefit is. Um, and I think all these things really matter. So there is a study from um, Denmark that was trying to capture mortality um, during this kind of Omicron uh, surge we had. And you know, going back to the, the first uh, discussion we had, the mortality rate initially reported in CLL was very high at about 33%. And, and before vaccines was down to maybe around 11%, those are in multi-center retrospective cohort studies. And so the study from Denmark really suggests that during the Omicron surge, it was down to around 2% in CLL. So we've had improvements in outcomes for immunocompetent adults too. So I think that that is still much higher than what we would see in the general public, but is much better than our initial um, kind of uh, look at outcomes. And so I, I also think it's unclear if this is really that Omicron's doing it. Both the authors of that paper and myself think that vaccines and they have therapeutic monoclonal antibodies. So antibody treatment, if you get COVID, are probably what's accounting for a huge uh, portion of this for our CLL patients. Mm -hmm. um, but I just think it's really positive to see that all these things that we're doing and where we're at with this for our patients, that really um, their risk of dying from COVID is much less. I don't know what you thought. Yep. I agree. And I think it, we probably should mention a little bit uh, the treatment of COVID in patients with CLL. So we've talked a lot about prevention with um, prophylactic monoclonal antibodies, vaccines, um, but we now actually have a lot of other ways to treat our patients if they do get a COVID-19 infection. As you mentioned, we do have therapeutic monoclonal antibodies. Um, you know, certainly being cognizant of the fact that they cycle in and out in terms of their effectiveness. So, you know, one that you used three months ago might not be the best therapy currently, but then we also have antiviral pills, um, such as, uh, Paxlovid, which has also really been a benefit, I think, to our CLL patients and people in general. Um, one of the things that we should uh, just mention with that is that there is interactions with Paxlovid um, in terms of many of our therapeutics we use in CLL, things like ibrutinib, acalabrutinib, venetoclax. That doesn't mean patients can't take it. Um, we usually just recommend that patients hold their CLL therapy during the duration of the Paxlovid treatment and then start it up again after. Um, you know, certainly we know that all of our CLL therapies can be given in higher doses too. So if somebody really can't hold their CLL treatment because they're worried about a flare or they just started, um, it probably is okay with very close monitoring to either cut the dose um, or even give the full dose with very close monitoring. Yeah, I was really um, upset. I got feedback from two. So, I, you know, I think with Paxlovid, because they're pills and they're widely available, at least in the United States at now retail pharmacies, and there's been a lot of effort to make sure that happens to get access. I mean, we work at a major academic center that has an infusion program for therapeutic monoclonals, but not everyone is so fortunate. 
um, that I think that's likely to be a huge benefit just because of access and convenience factors. And I was really upset to have gotten notes from two different patients that um, either their primary care physician or someone locally, these people live in other states, had told them, oh, you can't get Paxlovid because you're taking ibrutinib and there's a drug interaction. And we were like, hold up, that is absolutely untrue. I mean, yes, it's true. There's a drug interaction. I don't um, want to say, you know, want to confuse people by saying there's no drug interaction, but you can absolutely just, and this person, both these people had been on ibrutinib for a long time. Like, just don't take ibrutinib for the days you take the Paxlovid. And I just uh, would hate for anyone to think that they weren't eligible for these therapies for COVID because of their CLL treatment. Um, and so it's always a good idea, as with anything, to reach out to your oncology or hematology team, you know, if you're getting advice like that over the patients. And I have been trying to educate patients about this in clinic when I think of it too. Yep, agreed. Um, I think, you know, in our last couple minutes, maybe we could talk briefly about treatment of CLL during this time. So we spent some time on this during our last podcast and, you know, how the pandemic has altered our treatment of patients with CLL. You know, I, I think right now where we are with you know, every child being effective with these therapeutics that we have, for the most part, I'm treating CLL patients pretty similar to at a time when the pandemic wasn't going on. Um, are there any things that you're doing differently right now? No, I mean, not really. I think I kind of feel same. I mean, you know, there's still like, if people are going to start a treatment, I try to vaccinate them or give a booster two weeks before starting treatment. But we all know with CLL, you get some time to start treatment. I don't think that changes ultimately. Heck, some people reschedule their treatment for three weeks later to take a vacation. So I don't think that's really a change. Um, I do think, um, you know, uh, especially with vaccine availability and before we knew that anti-CD20s were really a risk factor for more severe COVID. And so I would still use them, but it did change the risk benefit ratio. So I, I felt like patients had to have a higher benefit from the anti-CD20 to think about using it. And now actually, I think just with the availability of Evashel that I think has changed that for me because this will replace like the antibody response you don't get from vaccines if they were to get COVID. So I've been um, trying to make sure that people getting anti-CD20s get Evashel or I talk about doing that before treatment specifically. Um, so I think that's something that has really um, at least changed the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody use. And, you know, I was already using like uh, BTK inhibitors like Ibrutinib and Acalabrutinib without you know, much modification. So that's probably been the biggest change. I don't know what you think. Yep. I, I definitely agree. I think, um, certainly vaccinations before starting any CLL therapy, um, if patients are due is a really good idea. Obviously you can give every shot at any point in time that doesn't interact with any of our current treatments. Um, I still am generally continuing BTK inhibitors if patients get COVID kind of on a case by case basis, uh, either continuing or discontinuing venetoclax. Cause I think we don't have a lot of data there. Um, but certainly I think that this is also a time when we need to to continue thinking about clinical trials for our patients. Cause that's something that I, I think we've really lost a little bit of ground on during the pandemic because patients weren't coming to the um, tertiary centers to enroll in clinical trials as much. Patients were more interested in doing something that they could primarily get at home. And I really hope that with the, uh, with us being in a much better place with COVID and our CLO patients, that people can get interested again in, in doing some of these clinical trials that are really going to help us continue to advance treatment. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point. Um, not only that people might not travel to referral centers for trials as much, uh, but I think too early in the pandemic, of course, uh, before some of the, the things we're talking about, um, you know, some of the patients rightfully were less um, interested in studies because they might require more visits or we just couldn't, you know, it wasn't reasonable to, to have people get CT scans and bone marrow biopsies at the beginning of this. And for sure now, I have no concerns about people coming to medical facilities, hospitals, or clinics for care. I have no concerns about the COVID risk of doing procedures like bone marrow biopsies or imaging studies. Um, so I think that barrier, um, at least for clinical trials, has been less. And I do think, you know, travel for this type of thing is much, much safer than two years ago. Um, so I agree, because I think, you know, if we, you know, if people aren't enrolling in trials, one, they're not benefiting from those therapies, which in many cases, study therapy is um, more are likely to be more helpful for people than non-study therapy. That's not all patients, but that's some. Um, but also clinical trials are really important for making sure that we get the best treatments in the future for all patients. And so um, it's been super nice uh, to see that really we don't have the barriers for that like we did. Yep. Well, I think we are just about out of time in this podcast. Um, so just as a quick recap, I think here we talked about some very positive changes in the COVID-19 pandemic for our patients with CLL. Um, we discussed Evusheld, the prophylactic monoclonal antibody combination um, that's shown some significant efficacy in prevention of symptomatic COVID and seems to continue to retain efficacy during the Omicron variants that have come out. Um, we discussed boosters and the fact that many patients who don't seroconvert with two shots will do so after a third kind of reaffirming our current strategy of using three vaccines as a primary series for patients with CLL and then recommending additional boosters on top of that. Um, and then we discussed CLL treatments and how really at this point we're back to um, treating patients with what we think is the best therapy for them rather than the best therapy in the context of the pandemic. And I think this is a really important place for us to be as we continue to look towards the future and continuing to improve both the therapeutics and supportive care for our patients with CLL. Thank you again, Carrie, for um, joining me for this today. Um, and thank you everybody for participating in this broadcast. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash CLLCOVID2. Look for all of our podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services. Thank you for joining us.